This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 204 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is the youngest Best Actor Oscar nominee in 78 years, since Mickey Rooney was nominated for Babes in Arms. He had an incredible breakout year in 2017, during which he appeared in Scott Cooper's Hostiles, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, and most notably, Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name for which he has received tons of recognition on the award circuit, including that Oscar nomination. He's only 22, and he isn't someone whose name was widely known prior to 2017, but he's been working since he was just a kid. On television series like the Emmy-winning Homeland, and in films like Christopher Nolan's Interstellar and Jason Reitman's Men, Women, and Children, both from 2014. He also made a name for himself in the New York theater community, winning the Lucille Lortel Award for Best Actor in an Off-Broadway Play, for his work in Prodigal Son, which was directed by John Patrick Shanley and produced by Scott Rudin. But 2017 obviously took things to a totally different level, and in particular, his portrayal of a young boy falling in love for the first time with another man in Call Me By Your Name has proven to be a total game-changer. On March 4th, he could become the youngest person ever to win the Best Actor Oscar, but regardless of what happens that night, his future is very bright. And so it's a great pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Timothy Chalamet. But first, I sat down at the Fest Parker Doubletree Hotel in Santa Barbara with Roger Derling, a dear friend of mine who also happens to be, and for the last 15 years has been, the executive director of the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, the 33rd edition of which is currently underway in Santa Barbara, a beautiful coastal community about two hours north of Los Angeles. Roger, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. The last few months have been brutal for people based in and around Santa Barbara. Can you talk a little bit about what you have all been through and how close it came to preventing this year's edition of the festival? Well, there was never any hesitation. There was never any thought of canceling the film festival. We felt that it was it's an event like this, even if things had not improved, if the 101 had not reopened, the city needed a community gathering. I hate to use the excuse, but a reason, an opportunity to get together and mourn and go through the emotions that you're doing fragmented. It's hard to comprehend that we were isolated. You know, the 101 was shut. 
not. People couldn't go out on the streets. When the fire started right after Thanksgiving, the air quality was so bad that you couldn't go out on the streets. You had to wear masks. Then right after that, the fire subsided. We took a big sigh of relief. The air started clearing up. You could go out on the streets. And then all of a sudden, bam, here comes the rain and the floods and the mudslides, and we go back to being fragmented again. So we were all isolated from each other. And really, is it correct that the fires caused a lot of ash to kind of cover the ground? And so when there were rains and ultimately flooding, the dryness and the fact that water was accumulating in weird ways is what caused ultimately these terrible mudslides up in the hills of Montecito above Santa Barbara. Is that how it happened? What I understand is that all the brush was burned oh. and it, it softened the ground. And once once the rains came, the, the mudslides came down and we couldn't go out. You couldn't get to Montecito. You couldn't get south on the 101. And so we all experienced all of this not together. Mm -hmm. We were all isolated from each other. So the film festival, I understood that was an opportunity, even if you guys couldn't come through the 101, mm -hmm. but the people that were downtown or the people that could get somehow to us, we needed that opportunity to get together. And it's been and very nice that each night, I think you're acknowledging a different group of people that participated in the rescue or recovery or and whatever. It's, it's a lengthy list of people that, that definitely and are still working to make it happen. But I need to acknowledge that in the 15 years of the film festival, your moderation of the director's evening was the highlight oh, of the film you. festival. And I've said this to you privately and I say it publicly, it's by far the highlight of my 15 years. That means I've, a lot. I've never seen an event like that. This and, was just last night. We were, because of the caliber of this film festival that you've put together, you were able to attract all five Best Director Oscar nominees this year. That's Jordan Peele, Greta Gerwig, Guillermo del Toro, Christopher Nolan, and Paul Thomas Anderson. So it was, you know, really a testament to the festival that they all came. But I, I'm just thrilled to be here each year. And we'll come more to what's happening here at the festival this year. But first, let's step back for a second and talk about you. How does a guy from Panama wind up in Santa Barbara and building this festival from what was, I think, a, a pretty special but also very local festival into a festival that is truly respected and seen as very important around the world. How did that happen? I'll try to summarize real quickly. I don't have a background in film. I went and I, I studied theater. I came to Los Angeles with a play and was asked by friends to stick around and try to make it into the film industry, but I never liked Los Angeles, <laughs> so I drove to Santa Barbara. Now, rewind a little bit to say that since I was young, I've been going to film festivals compulsively. Mm -hmm. I've been going to Telluride Film Festival for 33 years, wow. and I live and breathe films, film festivals. And when I moved from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara, originally from New York and then Los Angeles and Santa Barbara, I opened a coffee shop, and all I talked in this coffee shop was film. 
and film festivals. And somebody walked in and said, what do you think of the Santa Barbara Film Festival? And I told them it was a piece of shit. <laughs> and, and, and I would tell them what it would take right. to turn it around. The dates were wrong. It was right after the Oscars and before Cannes. This was before Tribeca mm-hmm. came into being. And I told them, I said, you know, the festival really needs a strong identity. And you, when you think about Telluride, when you think about Sundance, you're able to describe what they are in one sentence. There, there is a film festival in every city in the world, practically, and they're all international. But what separates the good ones and the ones that are doing well are the ones that have a very clear vision, a very clear identity of what they are. So what did you imagine the identity of this one should be? I understood that the proximity to Hollywood and the proximity to the Oscar nominations was something that could that could work. And also, you know, what was also curious is that during the spring here in Santa Barbara, the restaurants and the hotels don't need the extra people here that are flocking the city. It's late January, February that the hotels, the restaurants need the tourism. So it also... 15 years ago, it helped us immensely that I could go to the different hotels and ask for help yeah. and and the caterers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and, and just to emphasize, since this is a podcast called Awards Chatter, we'll explain that I think one of the, as you, you know, you kind of referenced, one of the brilliant and very effective things about the timing of the Santa Barbara International Film Festival is that it happens sort of either just before or sometimes I think during voting for the final round of the Oscars. And you make a point of sort of scouting out people to honor during the festival who, yes, independently are really great, but who also are likely to be nominated for an Oscar so that they have an extra incentive to come to Santa Barbara where there are quite a few Academy members, right? The latest is close to 200 wow. Academy members. And there are people that are regulars of yours. I mean, every night, Christopher, Christopher Lloyd. Lloyd, Andy Davis, yeah. Anthony Zerbe. That's amazing. Uh, and they really, they and everybody else in Santa Barbara, or, you know, a large number of people in Santa Barbara really do turn out. People have remarked upon the fact during the festival this year and every year that it's great to have people that want to come to the big tributes each night and to the cocktail parties or whatever afterwards. But you can go into one of the screenings that happen throughout the week, any time of the day, could be for shorts or animated features or whatever, and there's almost always a full house here. We're fortunate, and it's screening start at 8 a.m., and it's pretty funny that the 8 a.m. screenings are sold out. Yeah. But the later in the evening, you know Santa Barbara, it's early to bed. <laughs> the things quiet down after... 9.30, I would say. Except for your tributes. Except for the tributes. These are sort of the backbone of the festival in a way because you do them at this beautiful, historic Arlington Theater in the middle of town, and you do get, as I mentioned, some terrific people. It's also remarkable, something to, to point out, that it is a historic movie theater that has 2,200 seats. Wow. And last night... At your tribute, there were 2,200 people there. That's awesome. And it's fantastic that a city is fortunate enough to have a movie palace and it's been used. Totally. And I can say firsthand that for me and also when I would see the, the various directors come out for this tribute, it's sort of taken aback to realize, first of all, it's such a beautiful theater where I guess you would say it's 
Mexican inspired sort of it looks like you're in a garden courtyard you're like in a you're actually outdoor like a paseo yeah with houses on the side balconies and all kinds of stuff the ceiling is the open sky yeah no it's beautiful and then to see you can feel when 2200 people stand up to applaud one of these people or whatever it's a it's like a roar so that was cool but over the years what aside from the very nice thing you said about last night's you know, director's tribute, what are some of the others that really stand out to you? Just magical evenings in Santa Barbara during the fest for you. Well, last Saturday, the Virtuoso, and this recent memory, that was also a memorable group of people and the chemistry. And we're talking about the Virtuoso Award moderated by Dave Carger mm-hmm. and Mary J. Blige and Timothy Chalamet. And Kumail. And, and Kumail <laughs> and also Danielle Kaluuya. Daniel Day Lewis and that you moderated it comes to comes to mind as the fact that he doesn't do a sit down no. and a career retrospective. That and was very special. The first one that we did that Leonard Moulton moderator was Peter Jackson. It was oh. the Mother Master, and it was 15 years ago. And it was, you know, when he was being coronated for the Return yeah. of the King. Yeah, that first year it's vivid because it was my first and it was so small in a way. That's kind of leading into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is even in just the 10 years of the 15 years that you've been doing it, I've been coming here for 10 and it's changed a lot in my memory. So I wonder for you, what have been the biggest ways it's evolved and grown over your tenure and what are the ways that you'd most like it to continue to grow and evolve over the coming years? Well, the fact that you have continuous sold out screenings, it's you've seen, I don't know if it happened while you were coming, that the directors, it was at the Lobera yeah. Theater yeah. and it was a daytime event and, you know, you had 300 people mm-hmm. and then now you're at the Arlington Theater in an evening mm-hmm. with 2,200 people. The Virtuoso was sort of the same pattern. And with that, you know, we, we keep adding screenings for the movies, venues, we keep adding venues. You've actually really redone a historic venue here, and right? We, thank you for bringing that up. That was a, definitely a dream of, of ours for many years of mine. The first year is that I, I had this vision that we were gonna eventually get a theater of our own for year round programming and then we acquired it last year and we remodeled it and it's a Dolby Atmos Dolby Vision movie theater it's state of the art we do screenings throughout the year and Denis Villeneuve thought that that was the best sound of wow. Blade Runner 2049 also Aronofsky came to do a Q&A after a screening of Mother and he had never heard it like that mm-hmm. and to, to hear repeatedly directors mention yeah. Gary Oldman we did a Q&A after Darkest Hour screening and the same thing that the, the, the sound it's spectacular so where is there to go from here is there anything that you haven't done that you'd still like to do as far as growing this yeah, I mean, I would love to see the writer's panel, the producer's panel to go the way that your director's mm-hmm. tribute happen. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that it's important is that there is a very casual, laid back aspect to the film festival. It, it Somebody, I am trying to remember the phrase that they call it, casual elegance mm-hmm. about it. I like that we have you know, the glamour and the red carpet, but it's, it's a very laid back warm quality about the festival 
And also, I love the fact that how knowledgeable it's not just like here. Uh, here's a big movie star. You go in depth in conversations. Mm-hmm. You do that. Pete Hammond does that. Leonard Maltin does that. And Thompson does that. It's very erudite. It's very sophisticated. Well, I think the the magnet for those moderators for the people that attend it is really you and I and what you've built here. And I want to, I guess, come back to you. As Allison Janney says in I, Tanya, we're losing my storyline here or whatever. And then they come back to her. So let's come back to you and just note that, you know, this passion for film that would have you going to Telluride for 33 years, long before there was any possibility, even any realistic reason to think that you might be running a film festival, that comes from, a, as you referenced, a great passion for film. You have written and spoken publicly and, and emotionally and movingly about the just the important role that film has played in your own life. And there have been examples in the last few years. You've done this with Spotlight. You did it last night with Lady Bird, talking about, you know, what I think is really at the heart of your connection to film. And I just wonder if maybe to whatever extent you want to get into it, just how has film helped you deal with some of the things that you've been through in life? I think what you are referring to is that I grew up in Panama. I'm gay. And I was sexually molested when I was a young kid. And I felt always marginalized and uncomfortable in my skin. But then I discovered at a very young age that film was the ultimate equalizer. And that in the dark, nobody could see the defects that I felt everybody could see about me. You know, I spoke about Lady Bird and I had very supportive parents that didn't understand all the things that made me who I am, but they were so supportive. In Shape of Water, to me, there is one scene that is so poignant. It is when the creature, it's in the movie theater. That's how I felt. But the thing is that the lights were down, and it was a place of refuge. It was a place of comfort. And I could understand that there were all these other film geeks that were with me and and that we were that nobody was judging me they were judging the films and i found my voice through film festivals and that to me was such an amazing discovery because i knew the effect that film could do but then i discovered that film festivals you have all these other creatures like me that are just there for films yeah. and and I could talk to people about film and that's all it that matter. I didn't have to talk about my private problems. And I mean, you've been to film festivals. People don't, all they want to talk is right. movies. They don't want to know, hey, Scott, you know, about your personal life. But it's amazing, I think, to see the power of film because through those experiences in the dark where you're thinking about and seeing how other people deal with things or whatever, you then emerge eventually from that and obviously we're all works in progress, but you emerge from that and we're able to get past and and better understand some of the things that you had been going into the dark to escape in the first place. So it's kind of amazing how it can have that effect on somebody. You were able to face your fears. You're able to face Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. eye to eye. Yeah. You're able to see a story like Spotlight and then see yourself on the screen for the first time, your story. And it, there's a healing process to 
that that movie has that is really beautiful. I mean, I think I'm think of so many how many mothers and daughters are seeing Lady Bird right now and being. I mean, I've heard many daughters that are calling their mothers after they see Lady yeah. Bird and saying, you know, I love your mom, and it's it's very special. Yeah. And in that moment, in Shape of Water, to me, is also very poignant. Well, the last thing I want to bring up here is a little bit of a lighter thing that I think we we can have a, a laugh about, which is that you have become my unofficial style guru. It hasn't shown in my attire yet, but we're working on it. Even just, you know, how to straighten a tie, has I, I've gotten a few pointers. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I want to go through it. Let's just know, I'm, I'm sitting across from a man who, in a lot of ways, comes seems like he comes from a, a different era because as I understand it, you'll have people over to your house and, you know, no particular special occasion, but hey, you know, let's do black tie tonight for dinner or to watch a movie or whatever. Also, you, you know, last night, for instance, a lot of us are showing up. I tried to clean it up a little last night, but some people are showing up a little bit schlubby and you come out in a, in a Tom Ford tux. At the same time, though, somebody could argue, oh, he's being conformist or whatever. That's what, But you also are a person that has always worn different color lenses in your sunglasses or dyed your hair or painted your fingernails. So I guess I just want to talk about, you know, where does this all come from and what does it tell us about about you as a person, as a film lover and, you know, just somebody who we might encounter at a film festival? Yeah, you could never call me a conformist right. when I walk around with painted <laughs> nails. The suits and dressing up is because I've always loved 1930 movies. Mm -hmm. I've always loved Philadelphia Story. I love those screwball comedies where Cary Grant is wearing a tux and dressing up. <laughs> I love Frank Sinatra, but also because my dad always said, if you dress up, you're going to get treated with respect and take care of yourself and, and spruce up. I love a martini. I love a suit. I love a tux. I think going to the movies dressed up is showing respect and rising up to the to the occasion and tipping an all hat to cinema and you're gonna you're gonna keep advising me free of charge is that uh fair absolutely to say? <laughs> we need to go one day we need to go you know and go check out suits and you know eventually i need you to get a bespoke <laughs> splurge i mean you're out in the open i mean you're in the public I know, and I you're standing look. next to Greta gerwig and standing next to movie stars you need to make them look good well i am excited for you to see what i've pulled out for tomorrow night's tribute that i'll be moderating to uh, at the festival to margot robbie and allison janney because believe me for uh margot in particular i will i will up my game exactly <laughs> you 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 just you gotta make them look, look good roger darling thank you for joining us thank you and now for my conversation with timothy chalamet let's go to Timothy, thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you for having me. And I want to take this opportunity before we get into anything of any real substance. I have heard about 20 different ways of pronouncing your name. I have heard Timote, Timothy, Timo, Tim, Timmy. Can you just help clarify what is actually the proper way to say your name? Listen, anything works. <laughs> I'm happy people are even trying. So the way it was meant to be pronounced is Timothy. That's just the way it's spelled, but mm -hmm. that seems a lot to ask of people, <laughs> particularly people with American palates. Right. So really anything Timothy. Timmy has always been what people called me when I was younger, and now that I'm a little bit older, it's Timothy usually. <laughs> but eh. So now 
why a French-sounding name? Are you? Where were you born and raised? What's your background? Well, born and raised in New York, but my father's French, and I spent my summers in France growing up, and I think it's just simply a name that my parents liked, so... I don't know. That's a, I'm that's not sure. Yeah. And what do your folks do for a living? My dad used to work at United Nations via UNICEF. Cool. And my mom works at Actors' Equity in New York, which is the stage actors' union, in addition to doing real estate. And she also taught in some of the schools I went to growing up. From doing some prep for this, the, what my sense was that you got into acting because of a few specific films and plays and maybe people in them. Can you share what the ones were that really exactly. made you do this? There, well, there's a number of them. Uh, certainly the, the ones that jump out in no chronological order, but I saw The Dark Knight when I was 12 years old and I was about to start eighth grade, I guess. And that was really a formative film for me. I'd been a Batman fan growing up. My mom would tell a story where I'd be in the elevator in New York growing up and somebody would say, yeah, your name's Timothy, right? And I'd go, no, my name's Batman. <laughs> and similarly, I heard from a family friend that had taken me to an audition when I was younger that I was signing in, like the sign-in sheet <laughs> at the arrival, and I didn't put Timothy, nor did I put Batman, I put Robin. And so <laughs> this was a story and a character that I think, obviously, for a lot of young people, especially my generation, you know, Batman, this was something that was close to our hearts. And then to see a film that had such artistic pedigree and more impactfully for me, a performance that I really had no clue what was going on in his head, in Heath Ledger's head. So that was really the first moment where I thought, wow, acting is transcendent. And obviously, that's not the way I was thinking about it when I was 12. That's the feeling I had. And then after that, seeing, particularly seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman and Andrew Garfield in Death of a Salesman mm-hmm. on Broadway that Mike Nichols directed, and I guess I would have been 15 at that point. I was a sophomore in high school. That was a really you know, formative experience for me too. I had seen a musical play variety show of sorts called Slava's Snow Show mm-hmm. when I was 14 in New York. And again, it was this feeling of transcendence that I had that I hadn't gotten in a spoken word play yet. And then when I saw Death of the Salesman and I saw also when I saw Andrew Garfield in that and he became an actor after that where when he, you know, I, I saw him do Spider-Man after doing The Social Network and films after that. And I always thought and Spider-Man was a character that I, was a big fan of growing up too. He's somebody I really started to look at and admire deeply mm-hmm. as an actor. And I guess one other one, you know, Punch Drunk Love, when I saw yeah. that in high school, that was like if the dream was to be an actor and within that the dream of economic self-sustainability or some sort of big publicity campaign around a movie like The Dark Knight or something, when I saw Punch Drunk Love, then it shifted. And I had, I guess, the fortune of not having really started my career yet and not feeling like, I had to make a shift from a commercial point of view to mm-hmm. something artistic because I knew from that point on, like, these are the kinds of movies, if I ever get the opportunity to be acting, I want to be in. And particularly, like, I we turned on that movie thinking it was a cheesy Adam Sandler comedy, and then he gives what to me is, like, one of the greatest performances mm-hmm. in, in modern movie making. So those are, like, the big three that jump out. We've had a lot of guests on here who are actors and actresses, and often it's you know, something like they were in a school play or whatever when they were three. But actually, it seems like not that, you know, 12 or whatever is is not still young, but that's a little later than a lot of people when they think about maybe this is what I want to do. So No, and I think as a consequence of living in, in New York, which I think is one of these entertainment centers, and I think the same would be true of Paris or London or respective to each country, they need to get the young performers out of somewhere. So yeah. they go through those centers of industry. So I had been exposed to auditioning and even being in some commercials at a young age. And that 
I didn't enjoy standing in a line of kids and smiling as big as I could next to a product. And I got to a performing arts high school in New York, LaGuardia, mm-hmm. and that's where I really fell in love with it, where it's, it became clear to me, oh, this is a craft. This is something to be worked on. In fact, the harder you work at it, the better you'll get at it. And, and experience became the greatest teacher and failing time and time again. That was really what opened the door in many ways. But also, like, my sister did a lot of ballet growing up, as did my mom, as did my grandmother. In fact, they did a sort of a three-person piece together when I was seven or eight. And yet, seeing how specific ballet was and how specific an audience reactions could be to technique or patterns of performance that would be unrecognizable to the untrained eye, like myself, because I didn't really have a training in ballet, and I couldn't get what people were reacting to. And that's what really made acting such a turn-on to me is that the words you have make it clear what the direction of a scene or a story is or in something like Call Me By Your Name, there aren't a lot of words. So it's like, how would what would be the physical truth of this as opposed to something that's so technique-oriented? It's what made like hip-hop very appealing to me too, to this day where it felt like it stood on the opposite end of the spectrum of, you know, of something where you're just focusing on technique. It, it seemed like with acting, with music, it's more of like a feeling. And that's what really turns me on as an artist. Like I read an interview magazine thing with Joaquin Phoenix where it said, where they asked him like, we know, how do you choose roles or what projects interest you? And he said something that I really like, which was he said, I'm not, or I'm paraphrasing, I don't mm-hmm. think I'm getting this totally right, but he said, uh, I'm, not, I'm not focused on doing different accents or wearing different clothes or scarves, I think is how he put it. Mm-hmm. And as much as I am chasing a feeling and what that feeling is, I don't know, but I'm chasing it. And I read that and I thought, yes, that mm-hmm. is how I can, describe what my experience my desire is doing this another similar example like at high school we got we had a lot of really great well-known actors come in and speak and the question they would get most often was usually you know what's your process how do you do it and they would give great responses and for every artist every everybody's process is unique to themselves so it was often interesting but there wasn't much you could pull from it and Edie Falco who's obviously the incredible actress from Nurse Jackie and The Sopranos somebody asked her once what's your process and she said you know, honestly, I don't know, but I just do it. Mm-hmm. And similarly, that was a moment where I thought, yeah, I can That's, I can really relate to that. And that feels like a marker of encouragement that you can keep doing this, not really knowing what you're doing. Well, so <laughs> how important was it, though, for you to be at, let's just say, the full name LaGuardia High School of Music and Art and Performing Arts, which is what inspired fame, if people need <laughs> exactly. a point of reference. Hey, yes. And I know from things that I've read that actually – you were there as a, a classmate of, of one of probably many talented people was Ansel Elgort, right. who, how cool that you guys both get your Golden Globe nomination <laughs> at the same ceremony. Yeah. But, you know, how important were those years for you in terms of developing? Was it clear already that you were deserving of the big roles in productions that you did at school, or, or did you have to kind of create opportunities for yourself? How did that all work at that point? Simply put, I wouldn't be acting without LaGuardia. And I was fortunate to have roles in, in a lot of the productions there, but because Ansel Elgort was there, <laughs> you know, when they did Guys and Dolls or Hairspray, I wasn't in those productions. He was getting all the he was, he was Yeah, he was Sky <laughs> Masterson. But there was this amazing thing where they would do a talent show there called Rising Stars. So, like, almost better than having the role in the musical is being able to create with this amazing production value there. And it's insane to me. LaGuardia is a public arts high school. I would not be acting without public arts funding and funding for the arts period, mm-hmm. or public funding for arts at an education level. Like, again, I just would not be in this position where I got to LaGuardia when I was 13. I talked about it with my you know, friends that have gone to conservatory, and any sort of acting training at any age is such a benefit, and 
more than anything, more than technique for me was the the gift was just failing time and time again and just being bad so many times that you, you get used to it and you don't care as much. And seeing the craft that it was, and they really try to make the training independent of show business and, you know, names like Stanislavski and Meisner and just repetition techniques and not to worry about marketability or anything like that. And I remember when I was 13, I did a scene from a play called After Ashley and was listening to the Hurt Locker soundtrack outside trying to get <laughs> revved up and couldn't do it. And the scene was no good and did the graduate when I was 15 again and it was no good. And then audition for a play called The Talls that was being done at Second Stage in New York, which is really like my first gig that I feel like was an actual mm-hmm. acting gig. I remember going into the audition and thinking, you know, I, I did a scene today in class that was terrible. Like, whatever works, works. And that has freed me up so much now. I mean, even it relates directly to Call Me By Your Name for me. There were so many moments of spontaneity in that movie that felt appropriate because I knew what an incredible director Luca was and I so fortunate to be opposite Army and Michael that I could try things, many of which didn't work and are bad. They're just not in the movie because <laughs> there was the freedom to keep going. Right. So, yeah. Well, so you mentioned that you had sort of some forms of auditioning experience and going out for things as a, as a young kid, like commercials and whatever. Yeah. When did real substantive acting opportunities first start to rise? I think your first credit was as is probably the case for many great actors, Law & Order. But this was in 2009, so where were you in your life at that point? It's funny, I don't think about this stuff in age, but I think about it in grades in yeah, yeah. our school. So Law & Order I do when I was in eighth grade. I remember when I got the text that I got the job from my mom. I was in a science class. I was in earth science. <laughs> and it seemed surreal to me. And I knew the actors in the scene were Anthony Anderson and Jeremy Sisto, mm-hmm. I think it was. Mm-hmm. And... I had seen Kangaroo Jack, and it was this weird feeling of like I'm going to be in a scene with a famous person. <laughs> Being a scene, I was a dead body. My, uh, my no, head was decapitated. Yeah, warn so. people if they go and look this yeah, up. Yeah, sadly, it's not, it's a nothing, murdered kid. <laughs> it's nothing. Uh, it's nothing with great roots in drama right. or anything like that. But yeah, that was the first real gig. I heard it described very wisely by an old actor once that Law and Order was the mothership. It kept everybody employed, mm-hmm. and <laughs> it gave a lot of us, including myself, in uh, New York, a, yeah. a start. Yeah, I mean, truly look at. A lot of the, yeah, and the building I grew up in in New York, Jerry Orbach was there. And, wow. Or he had lived there, not when I yeah, was there. Yeah. But yeah, so that was really the first one. I guess before that, I had done a short film called Sweet Tooth. And from there, worked with those folks on a short film called Clown. But Law & Order was really, that felt like acting for the first time. Was there a pop directly as a result of it? Like, did you start to get more opportunities? No, not really. I mean... Again, I was still in eighth grade at that point. I had a deep passion for soccer. It was around that time I was realizing I am not good, fast, strong, <laughs> talented enough at this to comfortably pursue it. And and really when I got to LaGuardia, like I remember the first day we were encouraged to bring in special objects that week. And so not the first day, but around that time. And mm-hmm. you go around the room, this is an acting exercise a lot of people do, but mm-hmm. you, you talk about a, an object that's an emotional trigger of sorts. And God, to have that experience at 13, I cannot... I cannot encourage it enough. It's, I think what I was getting to earlier when I said it's one thing to be able to go to Juilliard, and that's a gift in and of itself, 18 to 22, but to do it from 13 to 17, you're still developing as a human. I, I still am developing mm-hmm. as a human and a man, and and w- that was especially true then. So for better or worse, you know, your habits as a human are formed around your habits as an actor yeah. and the ability to, to shapeshift to your roles. Yeah, I guess that was a long answer, but no, really I would not be acting without LaGuardia. And I... And, I, I think Ansel would say the same in consequence to the education we have from the same teachers, really, mm-hmm. particularly one guy, his name, 
Harry Who, Schiffman. Yeah, did you take a specific class with him, or what was it? I had so Mr. Schiffman. <laughs> can't call him Harry. I don't know. It's weird for me. He's, he's told me to, but I can't. Right. Sorry, Mr. Schiffman. Yeah, I had him for my sophomore studio class. That's when I was doing the graduate. Who were you playing? I was playing Benjamin, Benjamin Braddock, Braddock. Right? That's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And the mentorship evolved really after that year, because really, that's what I was alluding to before, what really helped the most then was doing that scene again and again and again and again and again, and then at the end of the semester doing it in front of the, the grade and the grade below and feeling like I do not have this down. I do not know what I'm doing. Which scene? It was the scene where it's Benjamin knocks on the door and says, no, I'm sorry, and uh, come back to me. And, mm-hmm. and The one that leads into them running off onto the bus? Exactly. Yeah. Where it's, he's visiting her at school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that seems always confusing because he has a hotel room too, right? So, but I don't think this, I think maybe even in the movie, the play takes place yeah, yeah. in the opposite rooms. And I might be wrong about that, so we won't hold it against but, uh, <laughs> but and there's a thing where it's, it's weird. Either it takes place in his room or in her room. But mm-hmm. it's that great scene where he comes in, he's apologizing about the affair with her mother. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was the big lesson there. And, but since then, I feel just so lucky. This year's been crazy and such a new experience in many ways. And yet, because of the grounding of this art school, which keeps the inspiration for all this so pure, like it's so clear to me the the path for myself as an artist and a human as a consequence of the school and also like growing up in New York, having some family members in show business, it's not the total destabilization that I can really see would be like just totally crazy if if this was all totally right, you just got I mean, thrown. yeah, that's yeah. where I really understand, you know, scary cliches about people getting going off the rails. Right. And, so I guess if there is a next big step and there are obviously things in between, but you're 16, I believe. You're getting ready to go into your senior year at high school, and along comes Homeland. Exactly. So my sophomore year going into my junior year, it was this experience where I had been so angry at myself for being bad in the graduate so many times, and then there was this weird moment where I didn't feel like it mattered anymore, and that was almost like the biggest step that I you know, took at LaGuardia, and then I auditioned for this play, The Talls, did it at second stage, had such a good time doing it. I had these agents I'd been working with, and I went into the office downtown when I was 15, and I said, hey, you know, I, I know I've been in school before during the week, and I, I, I'm in school. That's not going to change, but please, you know, think of me for everything now. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to pursue it. And, and you know, booked an arc on a TV show called Royal Pains mm-hmm. with Mark Feuerstein, did that, then did a pilot called Trooper, that ironically Craig Gillespie directed, really? who directed I, Tanya. Yeah, yeah. So he really, that, and that, if Law & Order felt like the first gig, Trooper felt like the first gig with like, where you get like a gift basket, yeah. you know, like where <laughs> right. the trailer has like an apple with like a happy first day sort of thing. So that felt like a step. Right. And then after Trooper, you know, we spent a couple months praying that that would get picked up. The universe works in many mm-hmm. mysterious ways because that could have been, you know, the, those are seven year contracts. This could have been my last year right. if that had been right. picked up. And then auditioned for Jason Reitman in New York and booked to be the older version of the young guy in Labor Day. Around that time, Homeland, these are the auditions for Homeland, and then I booked that, and they, they're not super clear about it, but it seems like there could be an arc on it. And I can't do Labor Day as well. So you have to call Jason out. Reitman. Yeah, did you figure that's the last you'll ever hear of Jason Reitman? Yeah, I did, and I really struggled with that because I thought Homeland's the thing that I think can help me more, but Labor Day's the movie, and the goal is to be working on films and great stories although that was changing even then and mm-hmm. it's really different now mm-hmm. too because there's as much great tv if not more and it worked films. out with jason reitman too and it did work out yes yeah. because I, right exactly and women and children then yeah did royal pains did trooper and then was going to do labor day and then homeland came about and that was like the first summer i didn't spend in france you know when i say these interviews 
when they asked for calling by name about the relation of my personal experience growing up, that was the first summer where showbiz eclipsed the tradition of going to France mm-hmm. and spent all summer doing Homeland. And it creeped into my senior year of high school, too. How did your parents feel about that? Did they give you a hard time? Or they? It was great. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't be acting without my parents either, both literally because my mom comes from a showbiz family and, like, put up a dance picture the other day of me when I was five years old, like, on stage, weirdly, at LaGuardia. I didn't even realize this mm. when I put the picture up. That National Dance Institute where I was dancing when I was, like, five or six with my sister, we performed at LaGuardia on that wow. stage. Wow. So, yeah, I didn't realize that was very f- full circle. Yeah. And... Yeah, there was a weird tension where my mom and particularly my grandmother, who was the first woman in my family to go to school, it was a big source of pride for them, college. And they wanted me to, and my mom, you know, encouraged this participation in the arts, but they really wanted me to go to school. And that was a good source of tension for like a number of years mm-hmm. was, I mean, any rational parent would pers- would encourage their kids to have a backup plan as something that's so economically ins- unsustainable as acting. And yet... I did that senior year while I was doing Homeland, Mm -hmm. which was crazy. I mean, it's nuts to be learning and doing at the same time. It's like two different parts of your brain. Mm -hmm. And you get why conservatories, it's not, it doesn't make total sense for people to be working because it's weird to have somebody going in and out and there are other other students too that would do that sometimes. And then I did Sweet Charity, the musical that I hear at LaGuardia. This is after This is while I'm doing Homeland too. I mean, I shot the episode where they blow me up while I was rehearsing (laughs) for Sweet Charity. And then did a program called Young Arts in Miami, which is from the National Endowment of the Arts. Mm -hmm. So again, it's very student-oriented, and yet I was doing, so it was like a weird tension for me. And then at the end of the year, did Cabaret at LaGuardia too, and was going to maybe start auditioning for things again, but didn't feel like I could turn down Cabaret. Like, when else are you going to get to do that? Haven't gotten to do it since. And then that summer, I guess that June or July, I went out to California to do a, a short film called Spinners that had a really cool script. And while I was there, there was an untitled Christopher Nolan film audition. And that's, to this day, my favorite director, you know, tied with PTA and and Luca and Greta. And auditioned for that and got it and found a version of the script online that Steven Spielberg was going to direct that was all about a father and his son. And I thought, oh, my God, I made it. This movie is about the dad and his son. Little did I know it's about the dad and the daughter. Well, we had Hans Zimmer on this podcast, I think, two weeks ago. Yes. And he said, because he had lost his father at a young age mm-hmm. and he said that nolan knew what triggered a push to get him to sign on to do that mm-hmm. because the version that nolan showed him of interstellar was with it being primarily the son <laughs> at, and not the daughter maybe he intended to do that maybe it was just a way of manipulating zimmer into emotionally connecting with it more but that was interesting to me too that no, i've yeah. never heard that i love that <laughs> i mean I had read an interview with Chris where he said that he had told Hans without any information about the story. It's, you know, write the song of a, of a father having to say goodbye to their their, their child. Mm-hmm. And then got to Canada and I got the pages for my role and I thought, oh no, this is, uh, <laughs> I am the I am the counterpoint. But that's got to have been on a scale bigger than anything you'd that done That was before. really, yeah. And also because the short film that I was in, uh, that I happened to be in LA for to audition for Interstellar, this thing Spinners, you know, we had 12 people on set and all of a sudden I was in Canada with 400 people on set <laughs> or something. And, that was a total dream come true. And I'd seen The Dark Knight five years earlier. That's what made me want to act. And then all of a sudden I was seeing Matthew McConaughey in peak McConaughey form, like getting into tackle work every day. And, you know, one of the first days on set with him, he pointed to a random tractor mm-hmm. on the farm and said, what does that do? And I, I said, what is it? What does that tractor do? And I said, I, I don't know. And he said, you know, you should yeah. tell me tomorrow. 
So I went home, printed out a bunch of stuff, knocked on his trailer door at 4.30 or whatever, 5 a.m. The, the call times were so crazy on that movie, and I remember distinctly one day getting in the car, passing out, passing out falling asleep, <laughs> um, and then getting to the set at like 5.30 a.m. was when we were shooting off that river from when the truck pulls up to the edge of the mm-hmm. cliff. And the sun's coming up, and I see somebody swimming in the water, and I thought, oh, my God, who, which maniac from our crew is <laughs> swimming in the water at 5.30? Oh, my God, is that Matthew McConaughey? <laughs> and he was just tearing up the water like That's it was great. nothing. It was five th- He didn't stay in a hotel. He stayed in a trailer wow. on set. Like, he wanted to be one with the experience. So getting to work with him, getting to be there with Chris. And I was there, like, a month and a half and shot 10 days over that month and a <laughs> half, which is something now, even, like, five years later, I was – I would try and condense that, but at the time I was like, keep me here as yeah. long as you yeah. need. I'm happy to be here. And he became kind of a, continues to be sort of a mentor, right? Absolutely. I mean, the roadmaps, I really try and find the right ones to take after. It's one of the amazing things having gone to work with Army Hammer for a couple of months. We're getting to promote this for more than a year now mm-hmm. with him. He's an incredibly talented actor. But for me, more importantly, the human, the manny is the husband, the father. It's something that's been very formative for me, and I'm grateful for it. One follow-up on Interstellar, and I would have done the exact same thing if I were you, and this was my first big, big movie, uh-huh. but I have read, and uh-huh. correct me if this is wrong, <laughs> how many times did you see the movie? In Twelve. Theaters? Twelve in theaters. It was 12. And what were your takeaways from doing that? Obviously, it's cool to see yourself in the big screen. I'm sure that's probably the yeah. first few times. <laughs> but then you, I gathered that there was something that he was doing, McConaughey, a particular scene that really impressed you. Yes. I had been at Columbia the year before, and I was struggling there a bit because I spent the summer working on Interstellar. I lived, um, I live in dream acting, now filmmaking too, more as an acquired taste. And I couldn't, the way I was able to at LaGuardia while I was doing Homeland also was an arts high school. I couldn't at Columbia. It's an amazing school, but it requires a wholehearted academic approach. I couldn't marry those visions. And when Interstellar came out, I was really hoping to be working a lot right away. And had spent a good amount of money going to school at Columbia, so I wasn't in an awesome living situation, and yet I figured like I'd be working, and it didn't really happen, and I'm very young, I've been very lucky, so, you know, I'm not saying what was me or anything <laughs> like that, and yet there was that feeling of, oh God, you know, I know I'm not in school right now against my family, my parents, my grandma's wishes, and I'm not working, and that was in this movie that I loved, and I didn't have a huge part in it, but it was... Every time I would go, I would, I, you know, it's the scene where he leaves and he says, I don't want you to go, or, or Mackenzie says that, rather, and that would shatter me each time. And for those who watch Call Me By Your Name carefully, there's a similar moment. Uh-huh. Even the blocking is very similar. Uh-huh. Coincidental or not? For those to, to see. Yeah. But I, I bring it up for good yeah. reason because yeah, yeah. that scene was, you know, it tore me up every time I uh-huh. saw it. Mackenzie became like a little sister to me to sort of see her in that state. It brought me there each time. And again, Call Me By Your Name, that seems very similar, mm-hmm. where Ellie and Oliver are saying their goodbyes. And I could not think of that. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you bring up McConaughey specifically, because as you said that, I thought, oh, well, you know, it was really the film. And yet, it was seeing someone that, I'd like to say was a brother, but mm-hmm. had become a paternal figure of sorts, mm-hmm. and just go to work and be so good. And in the midst of a sci-fi movie, finding moments to, like that whole monologue where, where I'm, I'm saying, Dad, I miss mm-hmm. you, and he, mm-hmm. he's weeping over it. This is the where you're seeing in messages. Space, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that scene always just I'm so in awe of Matthew in that scene because it's a huge movie. It's a studio film, and like that, it's always the scenes in movies that I haven't seen before that I love. Mm-hmm. And like he's reacting to a screen there, and the prescription of the scene is 
you're seeing your kid age across his lifetime and you weren't there for it. And he's playing that out truthfully and he's doing an amazing job at it. The same way in the Florida Project, the whole sequence with the weird guy with the ID that's maybe from out of town. I've never seen that in a movie before. And that's what's exciting to me as a viewer. The scene in Three Billboards where Sam Rockwell breaks down as a cop in the restroom. And that's like a really incredible scene. This is a character you've been loathing the whole movie and then all of a sudden you feel for him. And so that's the stuff that's exciting. So when I saw McConaughey in that scene, but also the scene at the end where he's reunited with Ellen Burstyn, that stuff's amazing. And it was the inspiration. Yeah, I was like, I want to, I want to, I want to be where this guy is. I want to be acting to the, to the strength that he is. And I've, you know, I saw Chris Nolan today. Like I've seen Emma Thomas at a lot of these things. And I've said it before, like I'm a fan first and to get to have the experience personally and individually. I'm loving it. I'm loving every second of it. I love seeing people in the street that are fans of the book. And yet it's the moments where I can look around the room and go, Oh wow. That's like exciting. That's that great feeling. Well, we should tell people we just have come over from the Oscar nominees luncheon where you're like surrounded by probably as much as any time yet. No. And I try to, I, I give myself the rule at the beginning of each of these things not to spontaneously combust. And I can, I can't, control myself (laughs) i have to be like the young guy in the room grabbing selfies with everyone yeah man why not i think what what would most people want to do in that situation yeah you know people can try to play it cool but that's it's nice that you appreciate it so i had heard that just to connect a few more threads of this these earlier kind of kinds of movies was it claire danes during homeland who had sort of maybe tip the scale in terms of getting you to give columbia or to apply or whatever to go and start college you ended up pulling back but I heard something because she had herself interrupted. She had gone to Yale and I think she went for a year and it was Claire and there were a number of, I actually had gotten to work with Cynthia Nixon later, but she was somebody that I looked to where there were stories where literally at Barnard, which is the sister school of Mm -hmm. Columbia, she was doing two plays at once and going from one play to the other play and doing work, schoolwork. So I had heard those stories and the, the thing that tripped me up about school and actually I would encourage any young person if they happen to be listening to this, if they're going to school, the independent of wanting to pursue a career in the arts, don't look at it as a, at a four as a four year exercise. That, that's what really tripped me up. Is I always felt like yeah, I have a little bit of momentum in show business. Why am I going to go to school for four years? Mm-hmm. This doesn't make any sense to me. I could be doing what I want to do now. And I went back to NYU after, and that's what's always helped. Now I'm I'm in a program where you have to really be specific about the major you want to be doing. And every time I'm pressed on it, I always kind of just say, look, I, I want to take classes that are interesting. At a certain point, if I have enough, if I fulfilled all the base credits, then I will really have to be specific about the major. But, but you're, for, saying you know, you're currently still doing that. I'm not there this semester, yeah. but I have the active enrollment or something. Cool. So, yeah, it's like I'll joke sometimes. People say, you know, what are you majoring in? And I'll say, you know, sitting in a classroom with people <laughs> my age. And that's really what it is, too. It's yeah. like it hasn't been like crazily destabilizing, but. I want to be representative of the times, the way Lady Bird and Call Me By Her Name feel very true to that. Like, that's what's so exciting about being in these films that are fresh and important simply in their lack of cynicism. I was at the Santa Barbara Film Festival the other night when you were among the honorees. And it's a great place. But even when you guys were arriving, I was just going around asking some of the, there were, as you, I know, heard and were nice enough to respond to, there was a section of people outside by the red carpet who were, (laughs) Very excited to get your attention. <laughs> yeah. And I before you came over, I was saying, you know, I'm just curious because I knew I was going to be speaking with you. Yeah. Do you know him from Call Me By Your Name or what along the way, you know, how did you find out about him? And actually a few of them said this movie that came out in 2016, little indie as, as I understand it from somebody who I am friends with, Jordan Horowitz, and his wife, Julia Hart. 
called Miss Stevens. So that was one answer. But you, so you've had this thing where you've been doing shorts, you've been doing indies, and yet it seems like it's not because you, you know, some people are a little snobbish when it comes to, you know, more commercial stuff. Are you primarily interested in those because those indies tend to be the ones that are more character developed or whatever? Or are you just as excited to to go and do a, you know, be more prominent in a bigger movie like an Interstellar? Because I read that, for instance, you auditioned for the the part that Tom Holland ended up playing in, in <laughs> Spider-Man Homecoming. Now, talk about how things could have been different. If you got that, maybe I would think you probably couldn't have done Call Me By Your Name. No, it would have been that summer. So, or, or it wouldn't have been that summer, but I guess the sequel would have been shooting yeah, that right. summer or one of them. And the truth is, Scott, I don't have an answer to that. That's one of the great joys of like figuring out where to go from here. Because I feel like it would be foolish or something to discount the bigger projects. There are directors like Christopher Nolan and Guillermo del Toro and Denis Villeneuve or Greta Gerwig, if she gets to direct a bigger mm-hmm. film, or Catherine Bigelow or whoever, that work in the studio system and make really great movies. Mm-hmm. So if something like that came around, I would, I would leap at it. And ultimately, those greats that have inspired me, like Heath Ledger or Andrew Garfield, or Philip Seymour Hoffman, or Joaquin Phoenix, Joaquin the Gladiator. Yeah, you know? they went and between the two. Exactly, and like, no, there there isn't an aversion to that. And yet, like so many of these auditions that would go on for these nature of projects, you know, the feedback would always be like, just think like charming guy, or <laughs> like you're having a good time and you're comfortable with yourself. And like, that's not as Elio Perlman, contradictory, complex, confused, lost, brilliant, precocious, mm-hmm. talented piano player, awkward. I mean, like, so much to play with. and play with. Or, with, or yeah. Kyle and Lady Bird, right. paranoid, self-assured, but paralyzed at the same time. Like, those are the dream roles. And where I feel lucky being 22 doing this as opposed to 18, although I know when I'm 26, I'll, like, make fun of myself, mm-hmm. is that my palette as, like, an artist, I feel like if it was all raw and feelings at 18 or 19... I love Kid Cudi, and like I said, I'd seen Andrew Garfield at that point or Heath Ledger acting things, and I knew it's what I wanted to do. Now I can like verbalize it a yeah, little bit yeah, more, yeah. where I know it's like the Safdie brothers, or Josh mm-hmm. Mond, or Greta, or Xavier Dolan, or another Luca film, or PTA, or yeah. what have you. These are the folks that really inspire me, I want to work with. It's the realization doing Homeland, you can do a take that you think is brilliant, and they're not going to use it. Also, they can cut a certain scene where you're barely in it, or like in Interstellar, one of my favorite parts. The Matthew McConaughey monologue they were talking about earlier plays entirely on him, even though I'm speaking, you know. <laughs> and so with that realization, it's like, hey, you're as good as your director. Right. You're a vessel to the to the story. So I don't know. Like we'll yeah. see. You don't have to know. And exactly. And, and sometimes people ask, like, what's the career that you know is the one you want to model yourself yeah. after? And I don't. Again, it's like my answer. I don't have an answer. Like the the folks that I'm inspired by, it's too daunting to want to you know, achieve that. It's really like anything good. That could be theater, it could be TV, it could be film, it could be experimental, it could be like Eric Andre, street stuff, like, <laughs> it could be anything. Yeah. And we can mention, I'm sure you'll be thrilled that, you know, when, when we said that Ansel was getting some of these parts in high school and you were doing talent shows, stuff on your own, you cultivated a, a separate skill set then that <laughs> people can visit on YouTube if they like Absolutely, right? yeah. Little did I know, it's, it's at a... Uh, 1617, like, I did not think I'd be going on Ellen with my statistics project being presented, but, eh, what have you. So this was, you were Little Timmy Tim or something? Well, it was like... This was rapping? Little, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is untalked about, yeah. so this is good. This is new information. 
I liked little tiny Tim because I always just thought it was ridiculous to have little and tiny after each other. <laughs> but then even at 15, I was like, oh, man, I don't want tiny Tim coming after me because <laughs> he's a legend in his own right. So then it was little Timmy Tim, and then I hung up the headphones on the mic. Uh, as I realized, similar to the soccer dream, I was like, man, I'm no good at this. <laughs> so, uh, so you kind of set up where I wanted to go next very nicely before I brought back in the rap mm-hmm. element. But 2017, let's just remind people, three movies – Mm-hmm. All tremendously received mm-hmm. for you. Scott Cooper's Hostiles, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, and of course, Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name. I think Call Me By Your Name had its premiere at Sundance. Yep. But all three of them, I think, were at Telluride, where a lot of people start thinking about things in terms of, you know, the season that we now find ourselves in. Right. So they've been getting a lot of feedback, and it's for the vast majority been, you know, tremendous. So can you just explain chronologically how this worked out? Which came sure. when? Sure. I was at Columbia and my agent, Brian Swartstrom, I was lucky enough where I was with an agent that happened to represent Tilda Swinton, mm-hmm. who's the lead of I Am Love and A Bigger Splash and the protagonist, mm-hmm. three of Luca's films. So when Call Me By Your Name came around, which Luca was a producer on, Brian said, hey, I think you should meet with this kid because he seems to be right for Elio. I met with Luca first, got his approval, then met with James Ivory, who was going to be the director on it at the time, and ultimately ended up adapting the screenplay. And then was loosely attached, but it became the kind of thing where every summer it felt like it was about to happen and it never would. So that was my freshman year at school, then left Columbia, wasn't really working, then jumped into a project called Miss Stevens that we alluded to earlier. That was like, it came into the email and it said, this is a very low budget, maybe something you wouldn't want to do. And it's a script I'd actually read in high school. It like, there's this feeling when I read something sometimes where it's not like that feeling of joy, like, oh, what a great project I want to be a part of. It becomes a feeling of like, like claustrophobia or something mm-hmm. where I feel like I have to do this. And with Miss Stevens, it felt like that story just mirrored my life in so many ways. Thankfully, the stakes aren't as crazy as Billy's in the story, but in many ways, drama, acting, and acting school, public arts funding, mm-hmm. public drama forums that helped me become an actor and to get to do the monologue from Death of a Salesman that I had seen literally for no reason it makes me like kind of emotional here right now like had seen Andrew doing it with Philip Seymour Hoffman bent over on stage and Andrew Garfield yelling in his ear you know I'm nothing dad you know I, and then the opportunity to do that within the competition within the context of the story so did that and then I did a film called Hot Summer Nights with a brilliant writer director named Elijah Bynum that weirdly it's going to come out this spring so mm-hmm. it hasn't come mm-hmm. out yet but it's a kind of an ode to Americana and American filmmaking in the 90s and from there did Prodigal Son in New York. Sorry. So that's I know. Good. Well, let's just back. also, I'm glad yeah. you brought up Prodigal Son because at least in New York, that certainly solidified a spot on the map. You get Best Actor Lucille Artell Award, which is a big off-Broadway, you know, honor. And I know that show, in addition to being directed by John Patrick Shanley, was produced by Well, that's exactly it. And that's Scott why I brought Rudin. it up. Yeah. It was produced by Scott Rudin. And thank you for saying that in the lead up because yeah. that was one of the great feelings was like, as opposed to the feeling now of like, wow, this is a lot at a young age. With Prodigal, someone was great. I mean, Manhattan Theater Club's an amazing mm-hmm. theater and space to put up a show, and they have a large subscriber audience. So the folks that are going are their subscribers. And this was a play about a young guy pushing against the borders of lack of economic opportunity coming from the Bronx and having an intellectual life that you know literally exceeded his skin. And there weren't a lot of people that a lot of young people, rather, that were able to come see it. And there was this feeling of, like, who, who, this is for young people. Mm -hmm. Here's this guy that's bursting out of his skin, like I said. And it kind of 
it freed me up where there wasn't the feeling of like, oh, here I am acting again where these opportunities are coming along easily. It was more like, I'm going to go do Call Me By Your Name now. Let's go make a great movie. Let's make something, like, let's fearlessly jump into this thing because nothing's going to, you know, things get, <laughs> it was clear to me then, things don't get seen even when fearlessly done. So that's got, that's simply got to be a part of the equation because that's what it was like on Prodigal Son. Before I left for Italy, Scott sent me an email with the script Lady Bird that Greta Gerwig had written and was going to direct. And I had seen Francis Ha, I'd seen it with my sister. This is a movie that literally made my sister at college, at Bard, change her major from from the political field she was in and back to drama. Wow. She was so inspired by it. And certainly, I, Francis, and Greta didn't direct that, obviously. I think she might have co-wrote it, though. Mm-hmm. It might have been Mistress Noah, America yeah. that she co-wrote it yeah. as well. And it was just, it felt like a no-brainer. And the script was so tight on Lady Bird. It was like, it was so funny to read. And I read both the male roles. I, re- I read for Danny, and I read for Kyle. Mm-hmm. And then Danny, obviously, Lucas mm-hmm. Hedges ended up playing. Who, by the way, had you auditioned for Manchester and by the Sea? So Lucas and I saw each other in casting offices, you know, for years in New York, <laughs> and we both had our fittings for Lady Bird the same day. And it's so funny, we both pretended to do the like, oh hey, uh, what was it? Like Lucas, Lucas? Yeah, no, I didn't say Lucas. That'd be a, that'd be a really right, poor right, playing right. in my head to act like it was Lucas. And then admitted to each other, you know, after that. Like uh, that, he had done a reading for Prodigal Son, and that I had auditioned for Manchester <laughs> by the Sea, and but so lucky again, like similar to Daniel Kaluuya now, who I see at a lot of these things, mm-hmm. and I feel like we can kind of look at each other and have a similar experience. Lucas and I, I can you know pick his brain like what it was, yeah, yeah. what this was like last year for him, and then so so met with Greta, and it was unclear which role she wanted me to do, but she said I'm gonna figure it out. I remember I I I'd read for her and then had a breakfast with her downtown in New York. And like was going into it thinking like I don't is this like a call what is right. this and she's and I said well you know after like 15 minutes I was like well, what's happening what are, what are we doing and she said oh no you're gonna be in the movie I don't know how yet I just got to figure out where but I want you to be in it right. and so then went to Italy started the pre-production for Call Me by Your Name in the middle of the pre-production got an audition for Hostels <laughs> and taped for it sent it in got a note back that said do it with a French accent. With no reason, but just to do that. <laughs> so retaped it with the accent and sent that in. And then they said, we want you on board. So I knew that was going to shoot right after Call Me By Your Name. And Lady Bird seemed to be going in the fall. Mm-hmm. So shot Call Me By Your Name. Had a week off in New York that I got to say, like, that was one of the greatest weeks. I mean, I love New York in the summer is my favorite time of the year. There's something special about it. Makes me think of a kid named Cuddy, that mixtape, <laughs> 10 Deep, Plain Pat and Emil present a kid named Cuddy. It just, it's like the creativity, the idea of aspiring artistry in New York in the summer, the hot subway, the sweat, people working at cool retail stores that are that are artistic geniuses, you know, hidden. I, I, that stuff, I say it all with a smile, like that's what, that's the turn on as an artist. And had that seven days there, then went to New Mexico, had this pre-production process that always makes you laugh because it could not, you know, I was doing it with Rory Cochrane and Jesse Plemons and Jonathan Majors. This is all for hostels. This is all for hostels. We were kind of the 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 uh, cavalry, literally, not mm-hmm. kind of, literally the cavalry mm-hmm. in that movie. And for Call Me By Your Name, the pre-production was an hour and a half of piano lessons every day, an hour and a half of Italian lessons, and an hour and a half of guitar lessons, and depending on the day of the week, you know, workouts too. And for hostels, it was going to the gun range, <laughs> it was riding the, the uh, horses every day, learning how to set up camp, true to the period. And then did that and was there about a month and a half. That's a good example of something where I worked like, you know, 10, 11, 12 days on it. Scenes where I spoke were maybe two, three days. In a movie like that, you're in the background of so many scenes, they need you a lot. And was there like a month and a half or something. But what an opportunity there, like to go from Italy where I was the elite of a movie and to get to watch Christian Bale work for, you know, for a month. Man, 
that man is a genius mm. and that means nothing coming from me but like that's really a, that was a huge reason in doing the movie was and I felt a little weird about it going into it I thought man you're pinning a lot on the expectation of getting to watch this guy work and getting to pick his brain a bit and gratefully he has you know been that even since we did a Q&A recently I happened to be at a place where he and Scott Cooper were doing the q and I was there with Rory Cochrane come join they, us they told Rory not to get on stage <laughs> I was thinking man I'm not in this movie that much like and to but be up there that's interesting though that you did you shot all of Call Me By Your Name before doing any of Hostels yes I mean I taped for Hostels before we started but right? no but I hadn't shot any that's of it a, that's kind of because you knew what you had done in Call Me By Your Name so listen this is like really another thing I haven't gotten the opportunity to to discuss, I don't know how interesting it is for people. And yet, there was this weird thing where you can't expect that it'll even be accepted into festivals, let alone get a great reception. But I was getting auditions for things or, or meetings, not necessarily offers, but like meetings on for things where I could maybe be close to it. And yet, I, I remember saying to my agents, like, I don't know, that, you know, what we did in Italy, it felt really right. And I don't know how people are going to see it, but I know that it's even if unseen is at of a certain level artistically right. that is not every project in the world. Right. It's like hard to go from eating it's filet weird. mignon to eating like Yeah, McDonald's. exactly. And, and, and Spider-Man, which I ended up seeing like mm-hmm. Tom was perfect for, and mm-hmm. he's excellent in that movie. And I feel lucky that one of those big things didn't come around in that interim. I don't know what would have happened. And now, cause now I really know that the path really, uh, it's been like a gift. I can do it more independently, but then it wasn't super clear yet. And but even going forward, like I, I want to do ensemble things. I want to be a cog in the machine, uh, the way you are as a lead mm-hmm. too. And to get to like I said, see Christian go to work or Rosman Pike or Jesse Plemons, these are all masters. Uh, like I got to, you know, we had a down moment on set, and I said to Christian, I said, I, I said, yeah, I don't, I don't, maybe you're in character, maybe you don't want to talk about this. I'd kill myself if I never tried to ask. How'd you do that, in American Psycho? <laughs> and he said, What do you mean? And I said, Well, like wh- whose idea was that? And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, to, to do the thing. And he said, what thing? And I said, okay, there's a performative quality to that movie in your performance that you don't take on in other films where you're more natural. And I'm curious, was that your instinct? Was it the director's? And he said he had a meeting with a director in New York and had said to her that he, he, he read it as a black comedy and that if, if it wasn't that, he, doesn't, he, didn't, he didn't know if he was right for it. And she said, <laughs> that's absolutely right too. And then he told me a story where Willem Dafoe was on set one day and he could see him kind of going, what is this movie? And it's true because I went back and I watched it and Willem Dafoe's, and, he, and it's kind of amazing, it like factors into his performance. He's like the only one in the whole movie that's on planet Earth and like, and he's kind of going, what What's is going, going on? on yeah, what is going up with everybody? So, that's funny. Yeah, and, that, and then finished that up in New Mexico and I don't think I went, no, you know, I didn't know, I did get the chance to go back to New York. I started NYU in the fall that year, that semester. Mm-hmm. I, that was actually my second semester I went back mm-hmm. and then in, in early October went to Los Angeles for two weeks to, to do Lady Bird. And not, you know, I, I think I worked consistently those days well, in a row. Yeah. Well, can we do sort of a rapid fire of just, so I want to cover a lot of things about Call Me By Your Name, really, that I think are probably going to be of interest to people. So sure. just in the short amount of time, I want to make sure we cover. Yes. So Luca first learned about you because his producer is the husband of your agent. Exactly. And came to know about you through that. So his producer in effect of the film, but prior to the producer that brought him on. Gotcha. So Peter had reached out to Luca as a, initially actually as an Italian consultant for the film, and then James was going to direct it, then James and Luca were going to direct it, and then Luca ended up directing it. So your first indication that they're interested in you was what, like a call or a 
Well, it was Brian's initiative to set up that meeting, so it wasn't like Luca reaching out. Also, I I guess Homeland had come out, but it, that would have been a real big stretch for him to have seen that and go, that kid has a French name, so maybe he could do a European <laughs> role. And I don't know, I left that meeting feeling like like we were on the same page, and and I, I don't know, that's even like a ridiculous thing to say, because what, in what other industry is like a is a 17-year-old getting like breakfast with a you know 42-year-old like pitching himself? <laughs> and that's even something that is changing now, hopefully, when I go on meetings, but... Now I can kind of come with the, at least the feeling like I've put stuff down on film. Before it was, it was like this embarrassment of pitching myself in each meeting <laughs> I had. Yeah. And then when these three years of being attached but not having a go for the movie, like were you kind of shitting yourself a little bit that this isn't actually going to happen? A little bit. I always had this feeling that I would need a Spider-Man or something. That was always my feeling before. That's why I didn't have an aversion to those kinds of projects. I think Spider-Man was a bit of an exception for me just because of the character I, I loved so much growing up. But I felt like, okay, to be in the Punch Drunk Loves and the Masters, I'm going to have to do something that makes those movies financeable. I'd worked with an actor that had a big impact on me, a guy a little bit older than me, and he never wanted to do the publicity game. And I saw him in a movie like last year even, and I felt like I had to, like it was, it was hard for me to watch it because like the production value wasn't so great. And I thought to myself, this maybe is not even true, but if he had played the publicity game and if you, you know, invest the right time, the way like, Kid Cudi or again like mm-hmm. Heath Ledger or Joaquin or Kanye like these guys all have made the effort so that seemed it seemed like I I, I, I was attached to other indies that were coming together too because I thought like I'm not a f- famous TV actor or something and so I, I didn't feel like it was going to come together but then it happened very rapidly and Luca really went out of his way to make this movie I mean I think Suspirio his next thing is what he actually made a little bit of money on I, I think for Call Me By Your Name, like everyone, it was really like a passion project for everyone. Now, is it true that there was no camera test, there's no chemistry test, the first time you meet Army is in Italy? Exactly, yeah. I, That's I met crazy. Him. What if you guys, like, what if, it just, I guess it's a quite a gamble to put your whole movie on two people who've never been I in know, the room. I, I feel like there were so many gambles in, inherent to this experience. Even, you know, I got out to Italy, a lot of actors get this fancy thing called escrow, I guess, where they're <laughs> ensured that they're going to get paid before right. they go. And I just wanted I was happy to be there and I went out to Italy and I was I was like two, three weeks into the preparation, into the lessons and I got a call like that maybe the financing for the movie wasn't going to totally come together and it might fall apart and like saying like also you can stop now. I mean you can go to Paris or wait because you don't have to continue training because of my and I thought to myself like yeah, all right worst comes to worst I came to Italy for three, four weeks right. and did piano right. and guitar and, <laughs> and Italian lessons and, and Luca was I mean he was the captain. He kept this going. Like, there were so many times this thing almost fell apart, so... Well, that yeah. part of it, though, really kind of works out nicely. Yeah, and because... also the idea, again, sorry, yeah, that was the beginning of the question, was, like, the risk of two guys not knowing each other. But we, it's so crazy, like, beyond getting along, like, really getting along. Like, that's one of my best friends yeah. now. Yeah. Anyhow. Well, and also, though, he, in the movie, is playing a guy who comes and you show him around and can show him the ropes. You're there, and, and he shows up, and you got... And that's really, like... We make that joke, but it's true. Like the relationship in real life was analogous to the film in many ways. Obviously, not in every way, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Now, is there any chance? And you've probably been asked this by a lot of people, but I I'm just looking at the facts here. The film was shot in Luca's hometown, as I understand it. At around the same time, he would have been roughly Elio's age. Hmm. He's openly gay. It's not. I'm not revealing any breaking any confidences. Is there any chance you're playing Luca? in a sense here. Did you get the feeling, obviously there's the pre-existing literary material, but maybe that spoke to him for a certain way. That's a really great question. And my feeling 
towards that is, if not playing Luca, existing in Luca's universe. And that was one of like, my favorite things, getting to see Christopher Nolan, who is tied for my favorite director with Luca mm-hmm. and Greta and PTA, and seeing him come over and say, Luca, and this is at the Golden Globes, I've seen a lot of movies try to capture what the 80s were like, and yours got it. And I don't know how, but it did. And I wasn't allowed in the 80s, obviously. But like that's the most weirdly satisfying thing to hear as it relates to like Luca getting complimented because there was so many, there's so much in this film. In fact, every person or every meal or every outskirt of a shot is there by design. Mm-hmm. And it's all Luca's mm-hmm. feeling and palette. You know, to in re- exact response to your question, he moved the movie from 88 or 87, I guess it's in the book, to 83 in large part because he wanted to avoid the looming AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. but also because he said that's when he was that age, mm-hmm. as you described it. So talking head, psychedelic furs, he was fans of those people. So I wouldn't say playing him because he wouldn't direct me in mannerism right. or affectation or anything specific to his experience in playing it, but certainly it was his universe. You mentioned that you weren't alive in the 80s. Just a fun fact for listeners, you are the first person born in the 1990s to be nominated for the Best Actor Oscar. So I didn't know that. Among, I mean, the cooler stat, obviously, is you're the youngest person in 78 years, but that one is a, is a good I one, too. I did not know that. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> if I just say a few scenes, can you tell me, in your mind, the first thing that comes to your mind as Absolutely. far as, like, the significance of it or the challenge of it or whatever? I mean, let's start with the piano scene where Ilios played this piece by Bach on the guitar. Yeah. Well, the in. challenge there, all filmed in one take, was a desire. And also, he wanted to use what I was actually playing on the piano without a post-production edit. So that's why I was in Italy in advance, was to get that sequence down, was to get the Bach with the Ravel variation, the Buzzoni, and the Liszt. Or rather, the Ravel is separate in the film, but that was also part of the yeah. piano pieces. That, more than anything else in the film, the Peach, any of the scenes with Oliver or Marcia, that was what was most daunting, because I thought... This is the thing in the book. This is the actor homework. Right. This is what you practice for. So daunting. <laughs> Since you bring up the peach scene, I mean... Not as daunting because Andre Osman, who wrote the book, mm-hmm. had said maybe it wouldn't work in the movie and it worked better as a literary metaphor. And Lucas said to me, if this doesn't work, it's not making it in there. So that felt like a challenge or something, like a, a challenge set forth by your coach or your director or something. The scene where you get this sort of monologue from Michael Stuhlbarg's character, which so many people say particularly gay people have said they really envy that because they didn't get that speech. Dream come true, the ability to act with, you know, somebody I'd seen in The Pillow Man when I was 12 and feeling like I just wanted to be a fly on the wall in that scene. Usually I like to have an idea, if not literally memorize, what the opposing dialogue is in a scene just to get a rhythm and a sense of a scene's shape. And that one, I, I, I think I memorized his last line or his last two lines and the rest of it I thought, hear it to me, enjoy it, appreciate it, stay in a character, but if there's anything you can take to your real life, hear it and take it with mm-hmm. you. The end credits scene, I heard there were three takes. Three takes. One that was, Luca came over and said, make it very guarded. The second one where he said, let the audience in a bit more. And the third one where he said, be totally free. And the second one is what's in the movie. With the fly on you. <laughs> with the fly on me. I know that those flies were everywhere. <laughs> but it really adds to the film. Again, like yeah. to that point of how much was on the like how much of it was a gamble at all times like felt like a lot of things went right too right yeah well, let's close with just a little bit about the life after 
the world got to see Call Me By Your Name, how sure. things have been different. Why do you think the film, like the book, has been so moving to so many people since Sundance, which I assume is where you probably also saw it for the first yes, time? Yes, that is where I saw it. Because love is love is love. And because I think you read the book or you watch the movie in the first 30 to 40 minutes, you kind of think, well, what's happening here? Where's the antagonist? Where's the twist? And then it happens in and of itself. It's just about these two boys falling in love. And I think the expression it takes is universally relatable. And I think that I like tricks people or something or surprises them because we're conditioned to other norms. And I think it's the monologue at the end too. I think it's, I think it's people getting flashed back to that feeling of first love and like going head over heels and like having no self-control physically or anything and just, and, and not knowing what to do with yourself. But then there's that second part where it's like a lesson in, in love and in suffering where if you suffer in life, whether it's because of grieving or heartbreak, if you're feeling bad or negative, you're doing it the right way. You're doing it the wrong way if you loathe yourself for the mm-hmm. suffering. Lucas said that he imagines at least one sequel to the film and maybe more perhaps in the mode of the Linklater before films where we see the same characters and actors over a period of years. Are you down? I'm super down. I would I would operate a boom mic on a movie for <laughs> Lucas, so I would love to, you know, pick back up with these characters and get to act with Army and Michael and Amir and Esther and in, in front of Luca again. There's been a lot of very positive responses to the movie. You've gotten all kinds of critics awards and acclaim and obviously the Oscar nomination. The other night I mentioned I saw you in Santa Barbara and I, I was taking in the, the people around me where, I mean, I just wonder, a year ago maybe even, I don't know if these people would have known who you were or, or cared and here you've got, you know, a, a girl cries because you give her a hug. You've got a grown man who's I will quote, Timo, you're my hero, man. <laughs> you know, what? I remember that guy. That you was, remember that, that guy? Yeah. That was two days ago. That yeah, two, two days, days ago. ago. Yeah. But like, what's that like the process? This is, a, uh, this is a quick turnaround. I don't know. I've been saying it a lot, but it's it's a dream come true in many ways. Like as we discussed earlier, I'm a fan first. I waited two hours outside of Rock of Ages for Mari Stoudemire to come out when he was going <laughs> to sign with the New York Knicks to get you his autograph. The cover of the New York and, Post. And, <laughs> or New York Daily Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I was the first one with his autograph. Right. And so that's great. And like, I'd seen interviews with, you know, I talked about Kid Cudi a lot, and I'd seen interviews with him where he described that destabilization, and I've I felt really lucky. It's not been, like, totally life-changing. I'm not getting stopped everywhere, but, like, I, 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 I get excited. Like, I'm happy people responded positively to the work. I'm happy that it's something that I'm proud about and that we worked really hard on, and, but it is, like, rapid. It, it is rapid, and it's, it is a game of, like, oh, yeah, I'm pretending that I feel totally normal at these things even though i'm doing a bad job at it because no, i I'm nervous everywhere at santa barbara that but, night yeah but it's crazy and i'm glad you say it like that the truth is like a year ago i this even after sundance i mean there are movies that do really well at sundance that aren't received well at a public level and i had been a part of like literally three projects where it was like ah you know either it was literally developed at the sundance institute or there was always something like oh it's going to get into sundance it'll have a, and then they wouldn't get in let alone get in and not get any love or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I felt like I was skeptical towards the reception of this until it really, really became clear until it was like Meryl Streep today mm-hmm. saying, yeah, and I've said it to you before, but man, you know, the performance in the film was, she didn't say man, that's obviously my language. We're <laughs> <laughs> seeing PTA today or getting a bear hug from behind. Like, oh, who's bear hugging me? Oh man, it's my favorite director, Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> and again, like I'm young and it's happening at a young age, obviously. And I wouldn't dare to say, like, oh, you know, not working in the unemployment, like, 
the struggle was real. But in many ways, there was enough where like all of this, I've appreciated so much. And the individuality of it is a little scary because I want to make sure that there are more things to mm-hmm. come. Well, you've got a few yet, exciting ones lined and, and up. Yet, yeah, and yet this is a great moment, so, yeah. I'm glad, very happy for you, and I really appreciate you doing this. Congratulations. Man, thank you. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply